0: Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. My name is Sandy Pepper and I am a professor uh, here in the Department of Management at the LSE. Um, And it's my great pleasure this evening to introduce uh, my friend Sarge Jetta to you. Uh, Sarge is an economist. He is a founder of um, a firm called the Smarty Train, um, an award-winning Uh, training and talent advisory company. Um, He has worked uh, with many large firms, including Accenture, BP, Ernst & Young, HSBC, and Deliveroo. He is an alumnus of University College London, but we will forgive him for that, because (laughs) he did his master's degree here at the LSE. Uh, uh, He is a trustee of the University of London Convocation, and he was recently awarded Freedom of the City of London, which I believe, Sarge, means that you are entitled to drive a flock of sheep across London Bridge. Absolutely. Um, He is also the new author of a book, The Smart's Big Little Hacks to Take You a Long Way at Work, Um, and he's going to be talking about his book this evening, Um, and he's going to be signing (coughs) copies of it um, after the event this evening as well. Uh, So for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Smart Hacks. Um, I would ask you to put your phones on silent, uh, and this evening's event is being recorded, and there will be a podcast of it um, Uh, After, issued afterwards. So, as usual, after Sarge's lecture, we'll have some time for questions. Uh, But in the meantime, I'd like you to put your hands together and give a very warm welcome to
1: Sarge. It is great to be back here, so thank you for having me. So, I'd like to start off today with a question. And this is the question How do you do the right things well? every day at work. How do you do the right things well every day at work? So when I was a few months into my first ever job, we were preparing for a massive, massive client presentation. The client was travelling down from the north of England to come and hear the findings of a huge piece of research that we had been working on at the firm. And we were trained to within an inch of our lives to deliver this brilliant presentation. The presentation was set, the room was ready to go, the handouts and the deliverables were all ready, and I was given the job by the client partner to go and receive the client at reception when they arrived. I was also asked to go and take the client to go and grab a cup of coffee because this client loved his coffee. And he had been traveling down from the north of England. I was really, really excited about doing this because I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I was working for this guy for, it must have been about five months. But in working for him, I realized that he didn't really know who I was. He would constantly refer to me as Raj, (laughs)
0: sometimes
1: (laughs) Taj, and occasionally Sarge. And that was when he did remember my name. So I was very excited, and I thought, great, this is a really good opportunity to build some rapport with this client. So I thought, right, let me think about some great questions to ask him, which I did, and let me get the change ready in my pocket to go and grab him that coffee when he arrived. And I was all ready. So I'm sitting at my desk and the phone rings and it's reception. The client is here. So I went down and I collected him from reception. And off we went to a queue that was something like this. So we're standing in the coffee queue and I'm positioning it right. And I'm thinking, right, I'm almost ready to go in with the first question. And the question that I was going to ask him was, how much time did it take you to come down to London today? How much time did it take you to come down to London today? Great first question, right? (laughs) But what I ended up saying to him was, why don't you have any time for me? (laughs) Why don't you have any time for me? And what made matters worse as I was saying this was I'm looking at his face and then I move a little bit this way and standing right behind him was the senior partner for the firm. (laughs) Who I also believe heard what I said. (laughs) So you know how there are these moments in life where you just want that to happen. The ground to crack and to swallow you whole. Well, actually, I don't think that would have been enough because what I wanted the ground to do was to swallow me whole and then to make me into dust particles to spread me around the entire atmosphere so that I would never, ever have to be back in this moment that I was in right now. So we stood for the rest of our time in that queue In silence. (laughs) And I was trying to work out in that moment how I was going to go home and explain to my mum and dad that I had been fired from my first ever job. Now, it turns out that I didn't get fired. (laughs) And it also turns out that the presentation went really, really well. And it also turns out that lots of other good things would come of this. So that evening, I went home and I thought about what had happened that day. And I had three really big reflections. The first was that I had to get a lot better at small talk. (laughs) So I was the first generation of an immigrant family to the UK, and small talk wasn't really something that we practised at the dinner table. The second thought I had was that there were these things that people were doing at work that just seemed to be amazing. They seemed to do these little things that seemed to be really significant, and it took them a long way at work, and I needed to work out what those things were. And the third thing was that I was going to put a large proportion of the rest of my time in my career to trying to understand these things. And that has taken me on a massive, massive adventure. It's enabled me to form an organization called The Smarty Train, which is, as Sandy mentioned, it's an award-winning organization that helps other organizations unlock talent. We've worked with some massive, massive clients all over the world, and we've had lots and lots of fun along the way. The second thing that it's enabled me to do is it's enabled me to watch people, not in a creepy way, (laughs) but to watch people from the boardrooms of some of the biggest organisations in the world right through to the trading floor, from crisis response units right through to the operating table. And what I've come to realise is that there's a group of people that exist called Smarties, They think, feel, and do in a way that gets results at work. They've also been the subjects of the book that I've just written. So today, I'd like to share with you three of the many things that I believe smarties do. Sound good? Mm -hmm. Right. So first up, though... A few months ago, I became a father. Great. To this I, exactly to this most beautiful little thing here, my son, Adil. Now, being a new father, you'd think that it's all about dirty nappies and sleepless nights, And yes, to some extent, it has been. But there's been something way more profound about becoming a new father. Something that has not only changed the way I look at the world, but it's changed the way I look at life. It's these things here, parks. (laughs) So I had never really been to a park before becoming a father. But during my time on paternity leave, we went to many, many parks. And today, I simply love parks. Here are some pictures of some family trips to the park. <laughs> now, one day, a very special trip to the park was planned. You see, on this trip, I was going to take my son, Adil to the park all on my own. And I did what I usually do before any trip to the park, I look at the park's website. <laughs> I look at its Instagram feeds and its Twitter handle, and I try and work out what is the best thing in this park. And so for this park, it was all about the soft play area. So the next morning, I unloaded my little one out of the car, and off we went down this very concrete path that took us to the soft play area and I'm having a great old time swinging along on my pram I was a little bit more flexible than that but it was the first time remember Um, and we're going along and I'm seeing lots of other parents passing me by um, but I'm going you know what this is the first time for me and I'm doing (laughs) alright so we're going down this concrete path when suddenly out of the corner of my eye I see this this dirt track that's coming off the concrete path that I'm on. And I stopped. It must have been that I was on paternity leave, a bit zen. And I thought, do you know what? I'd really like to go down this dirt track. But then I thought to myself, hold on a moment, you're in Croydon. And <laughs> in Croydon, <laughs> you don't really want to be going down dirt tracks in parks. But then I thought to myself, hold on a moment, you're a new parent and you've got to show Adil that you've got to be open to new opportunities, right? To seize the day. That's what fathers do. So this is a picture of me having a conversation with Adil about it. Now, just for the record, he was not asleep there, okay? I have a very reflective son and when he's in deep thought, he closes his eyes. (laughs) So we're having a conversation about whether to go down this dirt track, and we decide to do it. So we go down the dirt track, and I'm thinking, hey, I'm pretty cool. It's a bit bumpy, but we're making it. And we're going along, and I'm thinking, yeah, this is all right. And we're going down here for a few minutes and having a great old time. We got stuck a couple of times, and there was a few puddles, and I trod in something I shouldn't have. But then suddenly... We're in this really dark place and suddenly these three people are rushing towards us. I'm thinking, oh my God, you're going to take Adil in the pram. But it turns out that it was just an amateur drama production that was being rehearsed in the park. Anyway, so we're continuing on until suddenly we get to this place here. The most beautiful view of the park you will ever, ever see. In one panoramic frame... You could see everything that was going on in the park from the dog chasing a frisbee right through to the family having a picnic. And I'll never forget this moment because in this moment, Ardil opened his eyes. (laughs) And I remember holding him and thinking, you really are a father. (laughs) And I did it all on my own and I survived. Since then, I've become really, really interested in dirt tracks. And it turns out That these dirt tracks have actually got a name in the academic literature. They're called desire paths. Desire paths. And actually, a really cool name if you think about it, because desire, I want something, and paths, tracks. And trust me when I say you are going to see them everywhere when you leave today. But desire paths exist when something is not working, they signal. That something is not working and it's usually because there is a quicker way to do something or somebody is challenging the prevailing opinion okay so quicker way to do something or there is a challenge to the prevailing opinion so if you think about it that day i was going down the concrete path going to the soft play area but others in the park were challenging whether the soft play area was the place to be They had forged their own path because they had worked out that there was something even more beautiful in that park than the soft play area. The beautiful view that I enjoyed with Adil and they made a path and that path continued and other people then went down that path. The thing about desire paths, though, is they're not just physical paths. Desire paths can also exist in the world of work. Let's think about it for a moment think about that moment at university or at work where you seem to be doing the same thing over and over again and you feel like pulling out your hair and you're like there's a quicker way to do this and so you just take a moment and you knock up a quick table or a quick spreadsheet and lo and behold you've made it easier for others the thing that you've created is a desire path or let's think about in your home life what about those moments where something's not working and you're thinking, hold on a moment, I'm going to group together with some other like-minded individuals and actually fix this. You're challenging the prevailing opinion. You've organized yourself around doing something differently to try and change something. That is the first thing of many things that smarties do. They make their own desire paths. And something is not working because there is a quicker way to do something, and they challenge the prevailing opinion. So, given that we've got a room of smarties, or smarties in training here, what I'd like you to do very quickly is to say hello to your neighbor. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. I'd like you to think about a moment where you can identify a desire path in your life that you, perhaps, that's challenging the prevailing opinion doing that. So if something's not working, where can you see a desire path to be made? You've got a few minutes, go. (laughs) So, that is the first of many things that smarties do. They build their own desire paths, usually when something is not working. I'm really curious, anyone want to volunteer a desire path that they may have discussed that they're going to build. Yeah, go on, yeah, over there, yeah. Um I spend a lot of time meetings and um only a small percentage of them are really productive. Some of them I feel like I should even be competitive.
0: Okay. So your desire path is you're gonna cancel meetings.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. Fantastic, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. Okay, so feel like we're quite a competitive bunch aren't we so uh let's carry on with the competition a little bit somebody has just had a bit of a fall. poor old john who's lying there on the road (coughs) lots and lots of people walking by who ended up calling for help who ended up calling for help you've got 30 seconds to discuss with your neighbor go Okay. So, does anybody want to volunteer a guess? Who called for help? Who ended up calling for help? Yes, in the red over there. Number 11. Number 11, okay. Okay. Why do did, why did you think number 11 called for help? Okay, okay. Okay. Okay, okay. in the green over there. Who? John? (laughs) No, John's not, John's unconscious. (laughs) Okay, uh, yep, over there. Number
0: eight.
1: Number eight. Okay, why do you think number eight? Because the
0: child's seen it happen, she wants to demonstrate the
1: right thing to do. Oh, that's very interesting. That is very interesting. So, the answer is, nobody called for help. (laughs) And this is based on an incredibly famous paper that was written in the 1960s about a fatality that happened in the US. A body lay there for days with nobody calling for help. And the reason why nobody called for help is because everybody thought somebody else would call for help that nobody actually did. And closely associated with this is a concept called pluralistic ignorance. This is when you assume that nothing's wrong because the reactions on everybody else's face is telling you that nothing's wrong so you, do, you don't react. You just go with something. The problem with pluralistic ignorance is that it gets worse the more people that are involved. So a really interesting study, you can tell the Yanks uh, do lots of interesting studies because Two researchers out in the US, Layton and Darley, went and faked some epileptic seizures in New York City, looking at what the public 's response would be to these epileptic um, seizures that they were staging. They were, they were staging just to be just to be clear. What they found was when there was one bystander, there was a response. of the time. But when there were five bystanders in their sample, that response level dropped to 30%. 30%. It's crazy, right? So the more people that saw this, the less likely someone was to respond. And this is something that smarties do. They understand the concept of pluralistic ignorance. They respond to things because they know that other people may not. But transformed into the work context, more importantly, they are always specific when asking something of someone. They use the power of the name because they know that nobody can hide from it. But most importantly, they don't allow any space for assumptions because of the nature of pluralistic ignorance. So, just because you're a competitive bunch, <laughs> I'd like you to now talk to a neighbour, maybe talk to another neighbour, say hello to the person that's on your other side, and I'd like you to discuss where you could have been a first responder recently. Where could you have been a first responder recently? Go. Go. Thank you, it's time to move on, wow. Does anyone want to volunteer where, they could have been a first responder in a situation recently. Yeah, over there, yeah. I was <laughs> at work walked in the corridor and passed a piece of rubbish several times <laughs> without it Did you pick it up? Uh, no, no, okay. <laughs> okay, good example. good example though. Anyone else want to volunteer? Somewhere where they could have been a first responder recently. Yeah, over there? Yeah. We use something called Walk Low Island, which is where we bank our business priorities one to ten. So we have ten of these, and we all get together the
0: whole company, and generally everyone stands around seven or eight. and usually one person in the room, and that's normally me, goes and stands
1: about two just to be a little bit provocative. Um actually can't be seven Absolutely, okay, brilliant, great example, great example. Okay, so you get the point, right? So smarties respond. So, next up. So I used to work with a colleague of mine who said to me that every single pair of shoes has a story. And I totally agree with this. (laughs) So today, you're going to prove her right, because you're going to tell your neighbour the story of your shoes. You've got a minute and a half, so I'm going to try and make a very loud noise at a minute and a half to flip. Go! Can I just say, my my memories of sitting in this lecture theatre, I wish we could have had this level of noise when uh, when I was having my lectures. It's amazing, it's great, glad you're enjoying it. So, we're going to come back to that story of your shoes in a bit. I've got another another little quick task for you. So, you've got 15 seconds to try and remember as many of these words as you can. 15 seconds. I'm literally counting this now. So, go. 15 seconds, 14, 13. Have a look. Don't write them down. Memorize. <laughs> Okay, three seconds, (coughs) two, one. Okay. So, how many of you can remember five words? Hey, that's impressive. Okay, very good. How many can remember ten? Ooh, that's impressive. Okay, so we've got a hand here. Let's go. Yeah, that was you. So, let's go. Ten. Right angles. Hard moment. Cool. Heart. Sun. How is that? That's
0: ten. Seven. (laughs)
1: Okay, so so worry not, because you're actually operating above average there, because on average, when I've done this experiment, you can remember probably about five. What if I told you that there was a really cool way to remember more words? How about this? Have a read. Cool, right? So there's a reason why storytelling is in vogue at the moment. It's not just because we all love hearing stories. It's actually because the chances of us recalling more information goes up the minute a series of facts is told as a story. In fact, when you're told a story, about 90% of your brain lights up compared to to about 15% if I just told you a series of facts today. So stories are cool. But three really cool things happen when someone tells you a story. The first is something called neural coupling. What that means is when someone tells you a story, you're actually experiencing the very things that you would have experienced if you were in the moment yourself. Really cool. The second thing that happens when someone tells you a story is dopamine, the neurotransmitter, gets released at rapid pace. And trust me, when you want, what, trust me, I say you want that neurotransmitter to be uh, thrown out through your body, because it's called the motivation molecule. It's the thing that makes you do things. It's the thing that makes you recall things with accuracy. And the third, and this is very cool, is something called mirroring. And what that means is when someone tells you a story or tells you a story in a group, the chances are that the very people that are all listening to the story, your brainwaves all start to follow a similar pattern. And when that happens, (coughs) great things happen. And that's the subject of a completely different lecture. So you're probably asking yourself now, stories are great. How do you tell a good story? The best stories are journeys of transformation, according to the brilliant storyteller Nancy Duarte in the US. And they do five things. The first is there is always an enemy and a hero in a good story. Good and bad. And they don't necessarily need to be people, by the way. But there's always a conflict between enemy and the hero, the good and the bad, which brings us nicely onto the second, conflict. There's some level of adversity in a good story that makes it a good story. The third is brilliant stories omit detail. That means that anything that's not central to the theme of the story, you leave out. The fourth is that good stories are simple, They avoid jargon. You tell them as if you're just telling your friend. And the fifth is they have some aspect of surprising them. So, uh, back to the story of your shoes. (laughs) (laughs) What I'd like you to do now is to spend a minute and a half each, so three minutes in total, retelling the story of your shoes but using these principles. Go. So does anybody want to volunteer the story of their shoes? Does anybody want to volunteer the story of their shoes? Okay. Well, so right in the corner. Right, If you shout out really loud so we can all hear the story of your shoes. Um, so, yeah, my shoes are... Um Um, and the first time that I wore them was at my
0: wedding. Um, yeah, I wasn't allowed to wear them before the wedding because everybody said that at the event, it would look like I was wearing new shoes. And at <laughs> the reception, my feet were bleeding
1: because. <laughs> <laughs> so now that everybody's
0: comfortable
1: with that. Oh, <laughs> wow, yeah, round of applause. I promise that I didn't plant him in the audience. <laughs> but what a great story. We had surprise. We had, it was simple. There was no detail. There was an enemy and hero. It was perfect. Well done. That's a great job. So that is another thing, and the final thing, that smarties do. Smarties tell <coughs> good stories. They know why they're important, and they know how to tell them. So it's been a bit of a whistle-stop tour of three very quick things that smarties do. They make desire parts. They respond. They tell stories. But I'd like to end with a final big thought on how to really hack work. So great things happen in the coffee queue. They certainly did for me. And you'll be very pleased to know that I have used my author's privilege to ensure that the first chapter of the book talks about small talk. (laughs) Something that I think we could all benefit from. But the last chapter of the book talks about this, about giants drinking coffee. What does that mean? This is all about the types of people that you need to have in your world as you start your adventure into the smarts. And you need to have coffee with them. So I started off today talking about my experience in the coffee queue and how there was a partner that overheard what I had said to the client. And rather than fire me, (laughs) he actually ended up helping me and over a series of weeks months years and even to this day he continues to and he's taught me many many things but one of the most invaluable lessons that the partner taught me was the answer to this question how do you do the right things well every day at work how do you do the right things well every day at work you do it by starting. We're at the LSE, so there had to be a two-by-two two in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you start by recognizing that the promised land is not the beginning of the journey, but it, it's actually the end of the journey. So according to Tom DeLong at Harvard, brilliant professor, what he suggests is that actually it's the start of the journey that really, really matters. That actually, if you want to get to the promised land and do the right things well every day at work, you've got to start that journey here by doing the wrong thing well. Now, just go with me with this for for a couple of minutes, right? Because if you do the wrong thing well, then you might try and do the right thing poorly, (laughs) You can't flip from going from one to three. The only way to get to three is via two. Now, you're probably asking yourself what? <laughs> what does this mean? How will I know which quadrant I'm in? How can I get to the promised land? Well, Tom DeLong has quite neatly summarized that to know where you sit, On this journey. All you need to do. Is to listen to yourself. There will be bits of yourself. That give the game away. That show you where you are. And there will be bits of yourself. That you know you need to have. As you need to move around. So let's look at this in a bit more detail. The promised land is there. When you're in. That place. Doing the wrong thing well. You tend to feel. A certain level of anxiety. Something doesn't feel quite right. You feel a little bit out of your depth. And in that moment, that's probably me, by the way, in the coffee queue that day, right? So that was me. (laughs) But in that moment, when you're experiencing that, that's when you make the decision to fix it. So your body is telling you something's not working well, it's probably some level of anxiety, something not working so well, you're feeling it, you know it. And that means that you build up the courage to move down here. So the second thing that you need to feel is courage and vulnerability to try taking on doing the right thing poorly. That's when you're wanting to bury your head in the sand. That's when you're wanting to run for the hills. But you're trying, you're trying to do it. So for me, when I was post coffee queue incident, that was me when I was trying to go and make small talk. And that happened over months, potentially even years. Where I was in conversations, I was thinking, I want to run away from this conversation quicker than even the person I'm talking to wants to run away. But in this place, you've got courage and vulnerability. And you keep trying, and you keep trying. And then one day, you get to here. The promised land. And that's characterized by feeling a sense of growth. Now, the thing about Smarties is they iterate this process every single day. Whatever the skill is that they're trying to build... They're iterating, and they're iterating, and they're iterating. But most importantly, what smarties are exceptional at doing is holding a mirror up to other people and helping them see where they may be. And that's why it's really important to go and have coffee with giants, because when they hold hold, hold up this mirror to you, that's when you start to see things about yourself that you may not necessarily have seen in the past. So, when I started work, I would often ask myself whether the place that I was trying to get to was actually the place that I belonged. And that started off an almighty adventure. An adventure to try and understand what the smarts are. The little things that people can do every day at work to make a big impact. To be their best selves. And whilst I'm still very much. A smarty in training. I think. That the distinguishing characteristic. Of any smarty. Is this here. Vulnerability. It's with vulnerability. That they. Feel differently. Just. Just. As you can feel differently. It's with vulnerability. That they can think openly. Just as you. Can think openly. And it's with vulnerability. That they can do. Decisively. Just as you. Can do decisively. (coughs) I invite you. To have an adventure. With the smarts. I wish you the very, very best of luck on that adventure. And whilst you're adventuring, (coughs) don't forget to help someone else out on their adventure too. Thank you very much.
0: So ladies and gentlemen, now we have an opportunity to ask Sarge some questions. Uh, Now there are... Around the audience, some people from the LSE with microphones. Um, If you'd like to ask a question, can you put your hand up and wait until a microphone arrives? Um, And then if you just briefly say who you are and your affiliation, if you have one, be it the LSE or somewhere else. (laughs) Um, and then ask your question and uh, uh, remember that a good question is a relatively short one (laughs) so hands up and off we go who'd like to ask the first question I should have said um, we'll take two or three questions at a time and then uh, give Sarge just a few moments to think about what he wants to say. So off you go. Thanks very much. Uh, Tim Broyd from UCL, I have to say (laughs) it. Um, Sarge, quite inspirational. How do you best cope if you're in an organization with a very low appetite for innovation? Or maybe even in an industry with a very low (laughs) appetite for innovation? Okay, thank you very much. There's another question, gentlemen. there. Hi, Sarge. Thanks for a great talk. My name is Rishi, and I'm um, just a member of the public. But um, my question is, how do you know what the right thing is? How do you know what Hi, the right sure. thing is? And there's another one here. Yeah. Hi, Sarge. Thanks. Um, my name is David. I'm also a member of the public. I had a question for you in a world with, um, you know, endless distractions at work in which our minds just go a thousand miles per hour, and we need to focus on, on stuff, getting stuff done. And within a world that has told us that we need to work eight hours a day, how do you feel about the, the, the idea of changing the, the, how the system works and getting you know, journeys of, of, of labor that are smarter, not, not harder?
1: Yeah. Okay, thank you. Sarge? Wow, well, great questions. So, um, so thank you very much, firstly, for, for asking those questions. So. I take the first question on coping with innovation, I think if you look at any research done on workplace motivation and workplace happiness, the crux of how to get people fired up about anything is about growth. So you're happy at work if you're growing and you're growing if you're happy. So I think if you're in an organization that's stifled for innovation, if I was in that organization, I'd be looking for for the opportunity to try and work out how you can help people think they're growing through the innovation experience, both personally and professionally? Probably be my answer. So growth. Um, in terms of knowing what the right things are, I think it's probably along the same lines as the growth point, actually, that if you're... Um, yeah, there are so many things that we can do to be productive and be our best selves at work, right? But it all comes down to what is it that makes us feel like we are growing and happy? And that's where I think doing the right thing is because I think you know, mastering small talk or mastering analytical skills might be for one person, but for another person, it could be something completely different. I think you've got to try and connect in with yourself to try and understand the bit of you that needs to grow and then channel that to be the right thing, I would say. Oh, my God, the point about distractions. Uh, it's an absolutely brilliant one. Okay, so, so just a, a straw poll in the audience... So, does anyone know the latest in terms of data? I'm a bit geeky and I tend to follow this weekly, but the latest data in terms of when you're interrupted at work, where, how much time it takes you to get back to the place you're at mentally before you're interrupted. So, so hands up, or shout out. How long? 25 minutes? Okay. Any, any other thoughts? 15? Okay, so so actually the latest research is right in the middle of the two. So it's about 21 minutes to get you back to the place you're at before you got interrupted. So I think the world is definitely changing. I think your question around how is it that we can start to think about doing more in an eight-hour day or even whether the eight-hour day concept is even viable for the new world of work, I would probably argue that we actually need to start looking at ourselves and understanding how we can be our most productive selves. And that means things like understanding the concept of distractions. I said destructions. They're probably the same thing, though, actually. (laughs) Distractions, destructions. Also starting to think about the other things that take our attention at work that stop us from applying knowledge in the way that we need to. There are lots of other things, but I would probably say the short answer to your question is the eight-hour day is probably going to be a thing of the past soon. I would probably say it's all about trying to use your time effectively, making sure that you understand yourself and how you work at your best, and then the people that work with you, knowing how they work at their best, and having a a full and frank conversation about how you're going to work better with whatever you need to do. I'd probably say that's the future orientation that we're seeing at
0: Smarty Train. Good, thank you. So, some more questions. Should we come over here? One, two, three. Mm. Hi, Sarge. Thanks for your talk. I'm also a member of the public. Um, what would be your top tip for uh, leaders responsible for teams uh, to coach uh, employees and staff members and teams to be smarts? Yeah,
1: okay. Thank you.
0: Yeah.
1: Hi. You mentioned um, to have, put yourself in situations where you can have coffee with giants. How would you say to put yourself in that type of situation? Because it's quite difficult.
0: Yeah. Okay, thank you. There's one just behind, I think. Yeah.
1: Hi, uh, Rudy Parker. I work in marketing at Arup, so um, it's particularly the storytelling part I found really helpful,
0: uh, really useful. I was just thinking, um, you know, I want to be a smarty. I get that I need to be more vulnerable, but would you have a couple of tips on things I could do in the workplace yeah. to become more of a smarty? So, yeah. Thanks. Okay, good.
1: Great. Okay, so the first one on leaders coaching teams. So um, it's always dangerous when you ask someone that's interested in behavioral economics a question around uh, top tips on coaching teams. So I'm going to answer that question with maybe uh, a little bit of a story. So cake mix. In the 1960s, it was considered to be one of the most innovative products to ever enter the world, right? Does anyone know about this? This is like powdered cake mix, right? And uh, unfortunately, in the early 1960s, it flopped. Um, So nobody wanted to make their cakes using cake mix. And they got a whole load of researchers to try and understand why this was. And actually, in the 1970s, it was one of the most popular foodstuffs in America, so does anyone want, just want to guess what happened between the 60s and the 70s to make it so popular? Hand up there, yep. Right, spot on. So actually, the, the task of just adding an egg and maybe some milk to the cake mix made people feel like they were making the cake, compared to the 1960s where you didn't need to do anything, right? That meant that they had some level of agency. They had some power, some involvement in the thing that they were creating. And that's why ready-made cake, Betty Crocker, etc., cetera, um, skyrocketed. So I think the top tip answering the question around what leaders could be doing if they're coaching people is actually to use the cake analogy, to actually have some skin in the game. So the best relationships form when someone has some level of ownership in the outcome They're not just seen to be a teacher, but they're seen to be involved in helping their student in the outcome themselves. So that would be my answer to that. The second about how do you have coffee with giants. Well, you'll be very happy to know that in the audience uh, today, there are a number of smarties that have come along today to help support me and support the book and support the mission. They probably won't call themselves smarties, but at the end, I'm going to make them all put white labels and there's some dotted around. They are the people that you want to be having coffee with um, and actually asking them lots of questions today. They represent some of the biggest organisations in the world. They also represent some of the biggest experiences that I think you as graduates would probably need to try and lock into. So that would be one, talk to them today. But also, don't be afraid to go to people and actually ask them for help. I think some of the biggest learnings for me, as I wrote the book and I thought about all of the experiences that I had had writing it, was actually the power in actually asking someone for help. People don't get asked enough and they actually love being help- uh, love being helpful to so go and ask. The third about how to be vulnerable, such a great question. So, I think that we're in a world at the moment again if you're looking at the latest data with you know mental health issues at work, you know with generation or the couple of generations of feeling incredibly um, The perfectionism drives us uh, as millennials and Zeds and potentially uh, X-generation people in the workplace. And I think a deep part of vulnerability is accessing the bit of yourself that says, it's okay to fail, it's okay to be learning, it's okay to have L-plates on and try. And I think that that's something that I believe smarties do. When something happens, uh, I usually call them Teflon shoulders. You know, they've got Teflon, you know, it's water off a duck's back. When something doesn't work for them, they just put it down to experience. And they don't say, bad job. They say, well learned. That's how you become vulnerable.
0: Can I ask a question, Sarge? Yes. Um, why Smarties? Where is the term Smarties? From? Sure. So, um,
1: so obviously the organisation that I founded is called The Smarties Train. Uh, and when the book was written, uh, a very good friend of mine, one that's actually in the audience today, Convinced me that when people read the book, they wouldn't necessarily think of it as anything to do with that great chocolate, but actually, uh, it was catchy enough for people to actually think, actually, there's a bit of fun and a bit of vulnerability in saying that I'm, I'm a bit of a smarty, or maybe I'm not, but actually, it really stuck. Um, and it was sort of great advice from that person over there. Uh, I will not point to and embarrass him, but the publisher also loved it as well.
0: Okay, good, thank you. So, should we go to this question up there in the middle? Yes. Thank you.
1: Hi. Hi. Amir here, so similar to you, did my undergrad at UCL
0: and did my master's at LSE. Good combo. Um, so my question is, um, for you, how helpful was it in, some, in terms of development to have a mentor? And two, would you recommend? And if so, how would you go about to getting someone to help you with that growth? Sorry,
1: so I, I missed the first bit of the question.
0: You how the helpful one? was it for you to have someone to help you in that sort of becoming more vulnerable and growth? Yeah. Okay. Okay, some help. Um, some more questions. There's a couple down here, very conveniently next to each other. Hi, Saj. Thanks for your talk. Um, just going back to the quadrant and the vulnerability thing, um, I love the idea of you know, being vulnerable and being courageous, but the cynic in me is like, well, that entails and assumes a supportive work environment and a patient-supportive boss. So that's not always the case. Yeah. How do we work around that? Yeah, okay. I'm just behind, I think. Hi, Uh, my question is why do you need to do the wrong thing before doing the right thing poorly? Can you not do the right thing
1: poorly immediately and then do it well? We have lots of fun answering that. (laughs) Okay. So the first one about uh, the question was around how is it that you can find a mentor and how can that person actually truly help you? I think for me, as I reflect back, um, look, when I started work, I started work with a whole bunch of people that were very, very unlike me. So I was, in my starter group at work, I was probably the only person that had come from uh, an immigrant family to the UK. I was probably one of the only people in my group that didn't necessarily understand the ins and the outs of work in the way that everybody else did. And I think that, for me, having people around me to go to and actually say, do you know what? I I don't actually know how things work. You know, I, I don't know how this works. I don't know how to you know, take a client out for dinner, I don't really know what the protocol is for this, that, and the other, actually became quite an endearing question for those that ended up helping me. And um, and to this day, they continue to. So I think that's the first thing. Don't underestimate how much people want to help. But the second thing, actually, is in a lot of the relationships uh, and the mentoring relationships I've had in the past, it's actually not a one-way relationship and increasingly, I think this is a really powerful thing, and, and you guys might have already heard of this, this term reverse mentoring, where actually there's a uh, you know a two-way relationship in a mentoring um, situation, where actually you could all have a skill, and I've, I've dedicated a chapter of the book um, to this, where you could all have a skill that could help someone else as much as they could have a skill to help you. And I'd really look at yourself and ask yourself, as we're going through a generational cusp in the workplace, What is it that you could bring to a mentoring relationship as well as being mentored to actually mentor someone else? The third was around uh, uh, how do we... uh, So I think the question was why is it with the the matrix there that I showed um, earlier, how is it that actually you need to go from one to the other? You can't just go across. So if you think about it, you're, you're in a situation where you're doing the wrong thing right, right? There's something that's going on in you and it doesn't feel quite quite right, right? So you're listening to your body and you're saying, right, I need to try and fix this. I think there's an illicit assumption in this model that you can't naturally know what you need to do. And that's the point. That's why you've got to try doing the right thing, but not doing it so well to actually grow and to learn. So the only way we ever learn competency, true competency in something is by not doing it well because that's how the bits of your brain get fired up to actually then know how to do it well and that's why you've got to take that route. It's an excellent model Thank you Oh right, have I just answered? I'm, not, I'm so sorry, I've actually looked at the wrong, uh, the wrong bit of my, my notes here So it was actually how to be courageous with your boss, sorry, um, when your boss might not be uh, the most supportive. So I think this is where your network outside of work becomes really, really important. So, uh, you know, we're all in, you know, workplaces are hard places, right? They're, They're their own ecosystems. They have their own challenges. They're almost their own sociological experiments in some ways. Probably the biggest thing that I could suggest is make sure that you read the last chapter of the book that talks about the types of people that you have in your life because you'll notice all three of them are not people that are in your work environment. The first is someone that is technical. So it's someone that has the skill to do your job but doesn't do it with you. The second is someone that helps you solve problems. You know, So their skill is actually in holding a mirror up to you and being able to bounce back you know, questions to you without necessarily working in your work environment. They're just good at asking questions. And the third is what I call a long gamer, wise one. And those are people in your life that just have a very broad perspective of life. They're people that have probably been in the workforce for a number of years. They have seen every form of um, toxicity or, or lack of support and actually, again, could offer you help and advice that could help you navigate to get the courage that you need to be able to do that. Happy to talk to you more about that afterwards if that helps as well.
0: Okay, some more
1: questions.
0: I've got another question, if I might, then. So um, so for the, the new graduates in the room, um, no doubt they will be going through the process of trying to get their first job. And I just wondered if you had any... Thoughts about particular things, particular tips for, yeah. for getting your first job in a very competitive marketplace? Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's a great question. So, and this is what we spend you know, half our life at the Smarter Train trying to work on and actually helping people to understand how to navigate that exact point in their career. So, there are three thoughts that come to my mind. The first is never have we been in a workplace environment where individuality is more embraced than it is today. So the first thing I would suggest if you're going into the world of work is to ask yourself, actually, what can you contribute? You you don't have to conform in the way that you might have needed to many years ago. What skills can you truly bring? So that's the first. The second is what I call your AQ, your adversity quotient. So increasingly, when you're putting yourself in interview environments today, because of the frenetic pace of the working world, one of the biggest things that's being tested in an interview environment is your ability to deal with adversity. And I would really, really encourage you to think about how it is you do deal with adversity. Because the ability today to deal with it, with all of the things that are coming at you in the workpa- in the workspace, it's faster and it's more intense than it's probably ever been before. And the third, and it's probably quite closely linked um, to adversity, is look at the skills that, the workplace is calling for today compared to the skills that were being called upon many many years ago and actually if you look hard you will probably find in some way shape or form that values are probably one of the biggest drivers in an interview and assessment process than your technical skills around problem solving or other things so values is just another word for just be a good person because it wins out there in the job market today
0: Okay, thank you. So there's a question over here, I think. Somebody, did I see somebody? Yeah. Hello. Hi. <clears throat> Hello. I was just wondering what your opinion is on the prospect of a four-day working week and whether you think it's at all possible in the near future. Yeah. Okay good, okay, good question, the future of work. We've got some more questions in the audience. Okay, Someone
1: there's here. Over there. Yeah. Hi. Uh, thank you for your advice, thank you very much. Pleasure. Uh, at the stage of anxiety, what would you do? Do you take the step and you do what you think you have to do, knowing that you, you might do it wrong because you're in a state of anxiety? How, how uh, what would you, the, your final, uh, which would you, uh, what's your final decision in the state of anxiety?
0: That, sorry, was that anxiety? That anxiety, you, yeah. yeah so okay. So, so I think so.
1: quite, sorry, so there's footsteps there. What was the, could you just s- summarize the question again? Apologies, the footsteps. Yeah. Uh, in the state of anxiety. Yes. Where you think, okay, I'm nervous, uh, I'm not in my best yes. state. Yes. What would you do? Uh, would you do what? You know, the first thing that you. Okay. You think you.
0: It's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Tips for yeah. dealing with anxiety and nervousness. There's another question around. Yeah, thank you. Hi, uh, Clementine uh, LSE alumni. Uh, I was wondering. So you don't talk about people who do the wrong thing poorly.
1: Yeah, uh,
0: And I mean, we all work with some, right? Uh, so <laughs> how, how do you help them go from doing the wrong thing poorly to doing the right thing poorly to <laughs> then help them do the right thing well?
1: Okay, it's a great Lovely question. Lovely question, yeah. Okay. Okay, so, so on the four-day working week, I think, I mean, looking at a lot of the research that we're doing uh, at the Smarty Train at the moment, it is ultimately going to be an inevitability that we're going to reframe our relationship with work. And that's currently happening right now with the emergence of things like the gig economy. But if you look at the future, for some of the biggest firms in the world, their success is not going to be driven by headcount anymore. Their success is actually going to be driven by outcomes. So we're moving away from a world of outputs. You know, I've done what I said I was going to do to a world of outcomes where I've achieved the big thing that you asked me to achieve. So I would say that the trend is probably heading towards whatever kind of working week you want, whether it's a one-day working week or a seven-day working week. The relationship with work is changing, and I think the power is coming back to the person to be able to dictate what their relationship with work is and for employers to listen more than they've ever listened before. Tips for anxiety. It's such a great question. Uh, You know, with the number of graduates that we train day in and day out, it's it's often the elephant in the room. Actually, it's really tough when you start work, and it's really tough when you're feeling anxious. That's why I dictated for um, the second-to-last chapter in the book. It's all about how to manage what I call your ants, your automatic negative thoughts. So it's nothing to do with an insect that's that's going to kind of rule the earth one day. But it's all to do with how you deal with the thoughts and the anxieties that happen. And that could be anything from, and they're cognitive techniques, they're things like mind reading. So, you know, when you're in a situation of anxiety, it's usually provoked by you probably thinking something that potentially isn't being thought. So, it's a way of saying to yourself, hold a moment, is that really happening? You know, uh, do I really think that? And there are other techniques, like you know, stopping uh, yourself from focusing on the negative in situations, um, making sure that you're amplifying the positives uh, in certain situations. So I would say the, the, the core to dealing with anxiety is all about dealing with your ants. In terms of what do you do when you're dealing with, a, with someone at work that is doing the wrong thing poorly. Wow. It's a great question to ask at the LSE because I suspect most people here um, don't ever get into that quadrant. And there's there's a purposeful reason why I didn't cover that quadrant in here because the model says you never want to be regressing on your journey. But it does happen, right? So hands up here, just as a straw poll, hands up here, um, the people that you know, do you have an experience, I'd be interested in just um, noting whether you have an experience working with someone that is doing the wrong thing poorly, so hands up okay <laughs> so probably about half, about half the room so, I mean there's, there's a number of ways to deal with this but one of the biggest um, is in the book that talks about feedback and how is it that you feedback to people in a way that's positive and helpful. Uh, And some of the tips that I would have when you put yourself in situations like that is actually not to focus on the person, but to focus on the skill. So what's missing from the situation is uh, a problem-solving mindset. How is it that a problem-solving mindset can be improved upon or learned? That's a great conversation to have versus you're awful at your job and I can't explain why. Right? So focus on the skill and the technical deficiency, not the person. That's when heckles go down, and that's where great conversations happen as well.
0: So we've got time for, I think a couple more rounds of questions, so let's go up to the towards the back if we could I am a. I'm a final year law student um, at the LSE. Great. Um, and my question is, um, how does a smarty deal uh, with the imposter syndrome? With imposter syndrome? Yep. Okay. okay. And this one in the middle, I think. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for your talk. Um, I'm Anetta. I'm LSE graduate as well. Um, do you have any tips on working with very culturally diverse teams? Sorry, just cut culturally, the last bit again. Culturally diverse teams. Yeah, and there's one just at the back, back row.
1: Uh, hi, I'm Vivek. I went to LSE back in 2002. Um, my question is, of all the hacks that you've uh, talked about, which, I guess, has the biggest risk for somebody but can bring the biggest reward?
0: Okay, so imposter syndrome. Wow. Biggest risk, Biggest reward. And diverse teams. Okay. So,
1: on imposter syndrome, so again, straw poll in the audience here who feels that you're an imposter in your job? Very good. <laughs> so, by far the majority of the room. So, I would probably say that dealing with imposter syndrome, I would probably be reframing it. And I would be saying to yourself if you're feeling imposter syndrome, it probably means that you're a high performer. And the reason why, and to quote probably one of the biggest management consultancies in the world, uh, McKinsey, in their book, they said that they focus on recruiting insecure, smart people. So I think, and that's just another word for saying imposter syndrome. So there's something about, I would say, imposter syndrome that means that you continuously have a growth mindset. You're continuously looking to grow because you always think that you're going to be found out. So actually, I would say, don't try and hide from it. Embrace it and use it <laughs> on the culture, The point of culturally diverse teams, uh, again if you're looking at some of the latest research looking at why some of the biggest um, failures in innovation culture are happening in the world where we're, we're constantly need, needing to be driven by innovation it's usually rooted in actually an absence of cultural diversity in teams so I can probably give you the academic answer to it which is that diversity is what wins and if you look at the organizations and many of them present here today that are investing in ensuring that they have got the most diverse teams the most diverse recruitment strategies they do it not because they love diversity they absolutely love diversity they also do it because they recognize that diversity wins because innovation happens because of diversity the third, in terms of um, the biggest risk and the biggest reward in the book, in terms of probably my favorite chapter, I guess as an author's privilege, it is okay to have um, maybe a favorite chapter. My favorite chapter at the moment is definitely the chapter on ants. So, this is all about automatic negative thoughts. And it was when I was putting the book together and I was writing it, it was the bit that I felt of the book felt quite serious. It was the really serious chapter. And the reason why is in a book that's, you know, very heavily illustrated and really gets to the point very quickly. It's the page or the two pages where I recognize that this is the place where you could try and touch as many people as possible by doing one thing differently in their world. And that is training themselves to think differently in situations of adversity. So the book uh, or the chapter is all about uh, automatic negative thoughts, but it talks about the thinking errors that we might make every day that in some way leads to just this kind of pit of anxiety in your stomach every day. And if you could just master those five or six things that you might think and find a different way of thinking about them, it will fundamentally change you, change those around you, and change your working environment. So the biggest risk is putting yourself out there and trying it, but the biggest reward is actually benefiting from all the things that it will help you
0: do and achieve in your mental health. Okay, thank you. So last questions. Do we have any final questions? Yeah, this one, one here. So, hi, um, I'm a student at LSE and I wanted to ask you, because I'm struggling myself with uh, finding courage to actually do things, how you get courage because if you don't have the courage to approach people, to ask them or to apply for a job, you eventually never get up, uh, end up doing anything at all. Yep. Thank you. Okay, (laughs) courage, any more questions? Yeah, um, uh, right, I'm a member of the public. I'm thinking about change, and this is both on a personal um, and also, but I think it can also be related to business. Um, I'm doing the wrong thing very well, I think, at the moment. Um, (laughs) I'd like to change careers, and I'm very good at what I do currently. But there is also that financial implication. So although I would love to, and I feel in a state of vulnerability, I still go back to what I know because it's easier and I know it, and I'm fearful of if I change, then my finances, there's a big implication. And I think that could be true for business as well, because if you have a business that isn't working, but it's actually bringing a bit of money in, then how do you make that jump, and I suppose stomach, the financial implications? Okay. Yeah, good. Courage, finances, any last question? Any more questions? No? Okay, do you want to take those two?
1: Okay, so courage. You know, if I, I wish that when I was at LSE, I was sitting in an audience asking such a great question like that because I think it's those that are even noticing that they need to find the courage to be courageous. I think, um, I think it's a really powerful thing to do and, and I think it's amazing that you're about to do it. Your question was, how do you do it? So I can't overstate enough how... How it feels to help someone and for the helper and to the person that's being helped as well. But, but for the helper. And I would really, really encourage you. And and again, today after today in the reception afterwards, you know, there are lots and lots of brilliant smarties, a whole bunch of them sitting over there and a whole bunch of them sitting down here. I would encourage you to go and talk to them and, and practice courage right there and right, uh, right (coughs) in that, in that, in that place and talk to them about some of the things that you might need help with. And if you're failing, Come and talk to me afterwards, and I will point you um, to them. So I just think you need to try. Um, It's not an academic uh, concept, courage. It's a practice concept that you've got to go and experience for yourself. In terms of the financial implications, this is such a great question to ask an economist. Um, It's it's, it's a dangerous one. So I'm going to give you the emotional reaction, and then I'm going to give you the the economist's viewpoint. An economist would argue that when you're trying, when you're in a place where you're doing the wrong thing well, an economist would argue that actually you're not actually doing the best that you can. Because an economist would argue that when you're doing the best that you can and being the best you and actually doing the right thing well, then actually an economist would argue that the money would follow that as well. (coughs) So I would probably say in the situation that you're in, you probably need to think about trying out doing the right thing and not so well. But when you get to doing the right thing well, you'll probably find that every time you take a step in the next space to move you to the next place at doing things well, you will probably find that your financial remuneration will probably match with it because there is a battle for talent out there and being the best at what you do commands a premium.
0: Sarge, I've enjoyed um, listening to you, as I always do. Um, I think you're going to be outside signing some books. I think you mentioned that you've got some s- yes.
1: s- friends in the audience. Yes, there are lots of Smarties here. I can see lots of them. And there are lots of labels. And I know you're not all going to call yourself Smarties, but I would really encourage you to put on a label, because we've got lots of people that want to ask you some questions um, outside. So labels are over there and over there with some
0: pens. And ladies and gentlemen, I think another There's- round of applause for Sarge.